Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. On this Monday morning MLK weekend, I know for many, many people, this is a three-day weekend. Uh, thanking God for Paul Perot, his willingness to come in studio live this morning. Good morning, good sir. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, one thing you're grateful for this morning. One thing I'm grateful for this morning, it was a quiet weekend. Mm, um, amen. I was, there was concerns. I'm in the Twin Cities where concerns about some potential violence at the state capitol. None of that panned out, so very thankful for that. So that uh, tops my topped my little uh, list of notes this morning. Thanking God for a weekend of relative peace, and then uh, continued prayers for our nation in this week, uh, months, and years to come. I was uh, reminded yesterday of the faith upon which we stand, the faith in which we stand as Christians, the importance of evangelism. So I'm going to open this morning with a word from Romans chapter 10, picking up actually like in the middle of verse 9, which I know is strange, but it would take us a long time to unpack the verses just prior to that. So uh, where in the word are you this morning? I'm in Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read from the middle of verse 9 through verse 17. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to read that again. In case you've ever wondered uh, how it is that you could be saved, here it is most simply in half a verse from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's an outward expression of an inward um, acknowledgement. And so it's not as if the uh, confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart are two different things. They are two expressions of the same thing, that you know and acknowledge who Jesus is and your desperate need for him as a sinner. So picking up then at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? Uh, uh, let me read, let me, this is verse, these are, these are a series of questions uh, beginning in verse 14. They're rhetorical questions, so let me ask them rhetorically. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all, not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So let me affirm uh, our faith this morning in Jesus Christ, not only as Lord of all, but Lord of our lives, not only King of all, but our King, 
King Jesus enthroned in our hearts, uh, the one who even now is bringing every thought into his own captivity, that we might represent him in the world that he so loves. Why? Why? In order that others might see him and hear him and know of him and come to believe in him and become then our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. That is actually how this all works and the importance of evangelism today, because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. All right, next up, Dr. Zach Jenkins will be back with us. We're going to catch up on all things COVID. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University returns uh, to join us and bring us up to date on all things COVID. Zach, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, I'm going to let you um, lead off. Um, What would be the COVID headline that you want to be sure everybody knows about today? Well, I think uh, probably the biggest thing to really wrap our heads around is what's going on with the vaccination distribution right now. Um, so, so really what we've started to see across the country is we've been revising some of our strategies to allow for people that are over the age of 80, um, sometimes 75, 70, to start receiving the vaccine, uh, depending, of course, on what state that a person is from. Uh, so, so as early as this week, uh, we actually are starting to see this vaccine open up for more people to get it than, than the people that were in that phase 1A group. Um, the challenges with that are that we have had some issues regarding people um, receiving the vaccine to start with. Uh, you know, in Ohio, as an example, there our governor reported out that about 60% of nursing home workers were refusing the, the vaccine. And, mm. and the challenge that creates is, you know, when you say no to, to something like that, um, which you have that right to do so, what it does, though, is it actually puts that vaccine on a shelf. It just kind of sits there. And logistically now, we have to redistribute that to get it into someone else's hands to get the vaccine. And that's a very complicated process. Um, Layering on top of that, you've got situations like where where you maybe have a very rural area in, in a state, and they may not have necessarily the right kind of distribution chain set up. And on top of that, they may not even have the ability to store the vaccine properly because of the refrigeration requirements. So so you can just kind of see how this is really difficult uh, for some areas, perhaps a little bit more than others. And it's slowing us down or uh, behind where we'd like to be. Um, I read one um, disturbing headline. I'm hoping that it's wrong. At the current rate, it would take three and a half years to actually uh, get everybody vaccinated. So um, obviously we need to figure out a way to do it faster. Yeah. And in reality, uh, I mean, we're, we're going to be up against s- some real challenges as we kind of think about what that looks like. Um, we, we have issues with manufacturing because we have to be able to produce enough product. Um, we also uh, need to have that that chain where we can get the product to the hands of the, the consumer, so to speak, as soon as possible. Um, so, so that's a big challenge we're running into. And in reality, the other thing to mention, too, is we're going to have people that um, – aren't on board with getting the vaccine ever. There are a large number of people that would like to delay uh, because they're hesitant, they're, they're nervous about what this might do. And, and that's 
that's a very very uh very understood in in some respects um but but some of these individuals i think some of the surveys reveal that they may want to wait like a year mm-hmm. um so you you could see what uh that might do to our situation yeah it, it, particularly when we're talking about frontline healthcare workers and people in nursing homes and things like that yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, Zach, my uh, just a little I can't remember if I shared this with you last week, but my over 80 year old mom and stepdad have each gotten their first dose. No, um, no side effects to uh, to take note of. And then they've scheduled for their next dose uh, like February the 10th. So um, it is happening uh, and people are receiving the vaccine. And, um, you know, I realize it's a really, really, really small sample, but I know at least two 80 plus year olds who um, uh, did not respond negatively. I mean, you, know, you don't know how positively they're responding at this point, but they did not respond negatively. So that's, uh, in my view, positive because they're my people. <laughs> so there you go. The smallest absolute sample possible well, um, is something I can testify to. I'll add I'll add to your uh, sample. I, I actually got it this past week and I've had no real issues other than my arm was sore for a couple of days. <laughs> so there you that go. That's about the extent of my, my uh, quote side effects, we'll say. Um, OK, so um, in 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 other covid news, you and I are going to talk about a number, uh, a number of things. Um, we're going to right after a break, talk about the spread of the UK COVID strain. But in another incredibly small sample testimony here, I read an article last week that actually foot injuries are like just exploding because people are not wearing shoes. They're at home. They're doing all kinds of stuff. They're not not putting their shoes on. And I now have a testimony in my own house to just such a thing. So there you go. I'm 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 like the person who's not only reading the news, but experiencing it in real time at home. So, um, all right, uh, Dr. Zach and I are going to take a very brief break. When, we're gonna, when we come back, we're going to talk about the spread of the U.K. COVID strain. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Um, what about uh, strains of COVID that we are now um, seeing that maybe we were simply unaware of, but um, these mutations maybe have been around for a while. Yeah, we've been hearing about the UK strain for quite a while. Um, and really the concern with the UK strain is that uh, at least estimates are suggesting it may be about 70% more infectious than the regular strain. It doesn't mean more deadly, and that's kind of important to recognize. Um, if it does spread, you will see, of course, more deaths from it. As, as you would expect with COVID normally, but it's not markedly deadlier. So that's something we know. Um, but we're seeing more reports of it in the U.S., though, of it popping up in different locations. Um, the reality is it's probably been with us for a while. We just haven't really been able to identify it well. Um, we're also seeing reports of other mut- mutant varieties popping up in locations. You know, here in Ohio, for example, they just named uh, two of them that came out of Columbus. I think they ended up calling them uh, one of them, the Columbus strain, and and the mutations are uh, not necessarily very impactful as far as vaccinations go. And we don't really think that that's an issue thus far with any of the mutants that we've seen. So that's an encouraging note. Um, but as we see this thing spread rapidly, we're going to continue to see mutations. That it's not an unusual thing. All right, we have a listener who has a question uh, back on our uh, COVID vaccine. Um, conversation, and that is uh, raising the, the concerns raised by 23 deaths in Norway, mm-hmm. uh, 10 in Germany. Um, 
people who are described, I'm reading the coverage, people who are described as uh, very old, frail, and some terminally ill. Can you just talk with us about the wisdom of vaccinating people who, um, you know, whose health is already very, very fragile? You know, I, I've, uh, I actually know which reports they're referring to um, out, out of Norway specifically, although I had not heard the uh, German ones, to be uh, honest, until this moment. Um, but as far as the Norwegian data goes, uh, my understanding is that um, it, it is correct. They were in, in the very frail, the very elderly, um, specifically a lot, of, a lot of them were in nursing facilities. Um, and it was, you know, 23, but I think there were tens of thousands of vaccines that were administered. And when you actually compare the um, the rates of the deaths that did occur to the actual general rates of deaths, it's not markedly different, and it's impossible at this point to associate it truly with the vaccine. So that's that's something I think to kind of put it in perspective. Um, but there is probably more benefit than, than risk in general, just as a general rule of thumb, with, with trying to provide a vaccine to that particular population because of how at risk they are from COVID. It's far, far more deadly to um, people in that age category, especially with a lot of those um, pre-existing conditions that they would have than say something like the flu would be. Uh, it's it's something like five or six fold greater in, in terms of risk. So vaccinating them um, and making them a priority group makes a lot of sense. Um, and the data thus far, I would suggest, doesn't necessarily tell us enough to say that it's harmful to that group. All right, um, Zach, let's talk about um, lingering symptoms. What are we uh, what are we seeing? I know that, just, again, you know, super small sample here, <clears throat> uh, people I know. So in the people I know sample, uh, this lingering of symptoms, particularly uh, in the people that I know, related to the they still can't smell. Like their loss of the sense of smell seems to be lingering for quite a long time. What are you seeing? You know, I've seen a lot of uh, issues with smell lasting for for months in some individuals or or taste or both. Um, And then I I think the other thing I've seen quite a bit of is just general fatigue last a while. And then brain fog seems to be the other most common things. So, uh, you know, if you want to think about what brain fog looks like, if you've heard the term mommy brain before, uh, you know, how moms have a different brain before and after they actually have children. Uh, there is actually some truth to that. Well, in in, in the uh, setting of COVID, it's kind of a similar situation where people kind of think about stuff. Uh, maybe it, it feels like it's a lot harder to process thoughts. They kind of lose track of things a little bit easier. That seems to really kind of last a little bit longer um, with people that have had COVID. So, so that's that's a bit of a concern. Uh, an experience I'll, I'll share with you. So, my sister-in-law had COVID, and she she described it her, her brain fog like this. She says, you know, I started cleaning my house, and the next thing I know, six hours had passed, and I couldn't remember how I had finished all this cleaning, and what the steps that I took were to get to this point. Mm. And, yeah, and, and that would be a little scary and frustrating, shocker. right? I mean, that's like that's exactly. like arriving somewhere. I mean, we've. People may uh, have had this experience where you've been driving for a really long time and or you, you're driving and you're you were already tired when you started and you you can't remember the route you took to get somewhere. That's exactly, exactly which is like dangerous. That. I mean, like we recognize how dangerous that is. And what you're telling me is we're going to have some percentage of the population operating this way for some extended period of time, possibly. Um, and it's not just related to to driving. It's related to everything. This brain fog is pretty significant. 
Yeah, it seems, and the, our best guess is it has to do with inflammation of the brain. So the, the virus isn't actually getting up to the brain. That that we're pretty sure of. Um, but just that that system wide inflammation that people are happening uh, or people are having seems to be affecting um, that portion of the brain more more than we would have expected. Hmm. It's it's fascinating. I know that it's it's fascinating to you um, as a person in healthcare who works with infectious disease. But it's fascinating to the rest of us as well. I mean, it just um, uh, and maybe in a different way, uh, we're probably a little more fearful, fascinated, uh, where researchers are, you know, fascinated in the ways that you guys get fascinated, which is a little bit different than the regular population. Um, okay, vaccine expectations versus reality. Uh, I had this conversation with um, with a member of my family who was saying that, you know, his uh, he he's meeting people who are thinking that um, that somehow when you get the vaccine, it creates like a shield against the virus. That's actually not how a vaccine works. So can you just remind us how vaccines work? Uh, yeah. So, so really um, what vaccines are going to do when you take one, there's a portion of the virus, of course, um, that that we've selected out that your body basically will identify and generate some kind of immune response to. So when we're looking at the two vaccines we have here in the U.S. thus far, that's a portion of the messenger RNA, which is the genetic data the virus actually uses to tell your cell that, it, that it's actually entering what it wants the cell to do. So that makes more viral particles, which makes more virus. That's the ultimate goal. So what, we're, what we've really done here is we've taken a portion of that data that just tells the body to make more of a specific protein that is called the spike protein. And that protein is what allows COVID to attach to cells and then deposit its data. So what your body then is able to do after it learns what this looks like, it basically can target anything with that protein on it, that spike protein on it, um, to neutralize it um, or, or potentially eradicate it in some cases. So that's kind of what, what it does. It just kind of teaches your body to fight off that one specific thing. Okay. And then you have to tell me uh, what's going on in my gut. I'm reading a headline, gut bacteria may affect COVID severity. Uh, I'm hoping that it says that if I have a cup of coffee every day, I'm less likely to get it because that would be one of my regimens, but that's probably not what you're going to tell me. Yeah, so we all actually have millions of bacteria in our guts, and the bacteria are not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, they actually do help us with digestion to some degree. So it's almost like a symbiotic relationship in a way. Um, but what happens in some cases, and this is we've known this for a while, um, things can happen that can disrupt disrupt that bacteria in the gut, which can impact your your uh, ability for your gut to maybe process food, and sometimes can even lead to some bad infections as maybe com competitive organisms kind of grow out in place of the old ones. Um, in, in respect to COVID, though, um, what's kind of interesting is we're trying we're starting to see that as the gut flora, which is kind of that collection of bacteria down there, as that gut flora gets disturbed it seems like people are maybe having a more severe immune response. And we don't quite understand the full linkage of that, but some data uh, that's come out of China suggests that maybe there is a link between um, gut flora that isn't normal and people having more severe symptoms. Okay, when, when you say gut flora that's not normal, too much, too little, wrong kind? Uh, really, probably it's a mixture of all those things. Okay. 
Um, uh, typically, uh, when you have too little, it usually means that you start growing out things you don't want to grow out because competition's yeah. gone. Yeah. Isn't the human body amazing? Like when you when you just start talking about something like that or when you talk about, you know, brain fog or when you I mean, just isn't the human body just amazing? Are, are there not times that you just are slack jawed? I am a lot about how God made this all work. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, you know, as all this stuff happens, I, I keep thinking back to, wow, you know, how fearfully and wonderfully our creator made us. It's it's quite impressive. It's quite impressive. All right. Well, let's uh, you and I be impressed with God and the things um, that he is up to today. And thank you for all of the ways in which you are uh, caring for people on the front lines there in Ohio. Um, prayers for your family today. I hope you I hope you get a little time off on this uh, Monday holiday of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, blessing, Zach. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. I hope you guys have a good day. Thanks. We'll be right back. Well, it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, we've got Dr. Walter Strickland from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary up next. You will recall that he wrote a book entitled For God So Loved the World, A, Bru a Blueprint for Kingdom Diversity. He and I are going to talk today about Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision of God's kingdom. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. There's no perfect formula for bringing a teenager to maturity, but there are three ingredients that'll give you a good head start. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. First, unconditional love lets them know that there's nothing they can do to make you love them more, and there's nothing they can do to make you love them less. Second, grace gives them room to fail, and then encouragement to learn from their mistakes. And third, truth is the correcting influence that balances their actions with what's right and wrong. Living out the truth also means that consequences come when they step over the line. Love, grace, and truth. Take those three, flood your home and relationships with them. It's the foundation for raising healthy, godly, and mature young adults. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. Walter Strickland uh, he teaches at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Walter, welcome back. It's good to be back with you today. So um, do I say happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day? I don't know. Happy seems weird. Um, <laughs> I, am, I am observing MLK Day. I appreciate your willingness to join us on what others consider uh, a holiday. And I do hope people are taking some time today um, to consider the life and the words of Martin Luther King Jr. I actually um, pulled up a web archive yesterday just to read through a couple of his sermons. Um, and so if you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, oh, maybe that would be fun, that would be interesting, um, why don't you read Remaining Awake Through a Revolution? Because I think that at both the beginning and the end of that sermon, there are some things um, that are really important for us to consider today. It was also MLK's very last sermon that uh, that he preached, not the last um, speech he gave, but the last uh, sermon that he preached in a pulpit. 
So remaining awake through a revolution. Um, Walter, uh, what do you what are some observations that you make about MLK and particularly um, his vision of God's kingdom? You know what? Um, it's so uh, uh, there's so many things going on in my head. It was why I'm st- struggling to start. But uh, you've already given away. I think something that many people overlook in the life of MLK, which is that his sermons are so important. So uh, often folks, they they see him as a a public figure, uh, which he was. They see him as a political figure, which he was involved in political type things. But what they forget is that he was a pastor. And then, you know, somebody once asked how to understand who he was. And he says, well, uh, essentially, I'm a Baptist minister. And so it helps us to understand that we have to walk, you know, understand who he is by how he understood himself, which was as a pastor, trying to uh, make society into a place which has this sort of kingdom feel, which which is a place where his parishioners could flourish, and that's why he was doing what he was doing. And so, uh, it, you know, if we're talking about sermons, I just love the sermon "Our God Is Able," because this sermon really shows this big God that he was dependent on. And he even has what we call a, the fancy word, a theodicy. The problem of evil is explained in that sermon beautifully to people who were the ones whose children you know, were getting bit by dogs, who were uh, being mistreated in public space. You know, There's this wonderful idea of that. We have to have a big God in order to be nonviolent and act directly in these particular times in which they lived, because if they didn't have an understanding of a God who was going to uh, rescue them, then they would have to go out there and be violent. So it was very profound that we see his sermons as as this treasure trove that's been really un, um, un, underexplored. So let me just say, if you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, gosh, it never occurred to me to go and just read some of MLK's sermons, uh, you can do so. I mean, like Wikipedia actually has aggregated them, uh, or that's one place. Um, And you can click through from the Wikipedia page, which might be the easiest one for you to find. But Stanford.edu has the uh, King Institute uh, web archive of all of his papers and documents. If you were just to Google um, uh, Our God is Able... MLK sermon. That's the link that's going to probably pop up first from the King Institute uh, at Stanford. You want to look. Um, you want to look, Walter, at specifically at some of the things that uh, that he said about the sovereignty of God or the eminence of Christ or the kingdom of God. Because when you when you talk about how he thought and how then um, his faith and his thoughts were expressed in his sermons and his speeches, those seem to be thread lines for me that um, are very, very easy to pull out. God's sovereignty, the eminence of Christ, the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's because if, if, if you think about it, if you're in a situation where you're, uh, your back's against the wall and you're trying to figure out how to encourage a people who continually feel like they are, you know, have their backs against the wall. I mean, you have to have a God who is, 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 uh, is sovereign, who, who is... Uh, uh, intimately engaged in people's lives, and he was really trying to to pick out moments where people were able to say, "Yes, this guy is for us. He's good. He's present." Uh, even even in the even when you know, as he says, um, so in spite of the the presence of evil, King says, and the doubts that lurk in our minds, we shall wish no, uh, we shall wish not to surrender the conviction that our God is able. So he's saying, 
there's a realization of the things that we see uh, in front of us. But there's mm-hmm. also something that's uh, also as equally real is that there's a God who is able. And if you look at the, the African-American preaching tradition, this is when the pastor starts to storytell. Because God was able for Israel when they were trying to escape Egypt. Our God was able for you know, for Daniel in the lines, then our God was able for then just telling the stories of the ability of God to do his work, to bring about this sort of kingdom reality is what we're talking about, this sort of kingdom shalom into the biblical story. And then there's this always this pivot to it's the same God today that was at work then. And he has the same character now as he did then. And so the, the God of today hates evil just as much as the God in the biblical times, and so our God can do it again for us. This uh, this sermon to which uh, Dr. Strickland is re- is referring, our God is able, uh, is based on a passage from Jude, uh, verse twenty four. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling, and uh, it was delivered by Martin Luther King Jr. on January the first, nineteen fifty six, in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, it was the beginning of a new year, and he he seems to be uh, reinforcing the the conviction, the understanding, the um, the reality that God is able. Our God is able. The opening illustration that he uses in the sermon, Walter, is um, so. I mean, it there's this would absolutely preach today. There's nothing in uh, in here that wouldn't absolutely preach today. I mean, he's talking about the reality of living in a scientific era and imagining that God is a or that man is able, um, losing sight of the fact that ultimately it is God who is able, our God is able. Um, And then he talks about uh, God's ability to subdue the power of evil uh, to which you have just alluded. He then goes on to talk about um, God is able to give us inner resources to confront the trials and difficulties of life. Talk a little bit about um, MLK's view of the the kingdom people in the midst of uh, uh, it's not already fully realized. He he, it was still a vision. It was still a hope, and in so many ways, it still is yet a vision and yet a hope. We live in the mm-hmm. already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And he did talk about how a Christian was to live um, in the midst of trial and difficulty. Definitely, and um, and, and it's it's wonderful that you're already picking up the already not yet for him, because he had this idea. Well, he, he understood where the world was. And he had this idea of this uh, beloved uh, uh, kingdom, this beloved people, this, this uh, sorry, beloved community, rather, which was a kingdom community for him. So if you hear him say beloved community, he's talking about the, the people of God in the kingdom that's to come. And he's trying to get people from where we, where we were then for him, which is in the you know, 50s and 60s, primarily when he was preaching and speaking, to that beloved community. And so it was wonderful to 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 uh, watch him lead, drawing upon the resources of the kingdom of God in the moment. So if, if you're if you're looking as a casual observer, and you watch the movie Selma, which depicts the, the his activity in, in Selma, Alabama, and they were uh, walking over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and then he had everyone kneel down to pray. So for the watching world, that was very shocking. You know, this was a very odd tactic. You know, it's almost like, you know, it's not the, it's not the same thing, but it's similar to, okay, you know, uh, Joshua, you know, let's march around the the, 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 uh, the city, you know, Jericho several times. Like, what are they doing? What kind of battle plan is that? Well, 
for for um granted king didn't have a direct edict from god but what he was doing was precisely what he had done with the people who were in the march before the march they were at the church they were fasting they were praying at the end of every march they would go to a church they would pray they would worship and so that was an extension of what went on in preparation for the march but it was out for everyone to see so prayer you know being attuned to what was going on with with god was a very big part of, of what his tactics were so there was a man by the name of kenneth stegler reverend kenneth stegler he was actually depicted in the movie selma he was one of the ministers that brought folks down from boston uh and if you remember one of them uh unfortunately died there and the other one lived and so uh, reverend stegler is the one who lived he actually lives uh, in the town where i live in north carolina right now and so i asked him what was the most profound influence or thing you learned, you know, from Dr. King during your time working so closely with him and organizing with him. And it was that he was a man of prayer. Mm. And that was very shocking for me because, you know, you hear so much about Dr. King, you hear some, I mean, so good, bad, otherwise, and you hear, you know, just about his uh, wonderful public speeches, all the civic activity. But the last thing you think about is prayer. And then he's the one who really drew my attention to this moment on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, saying that Dr. King was deeply spiritual, and he was trying to lead his people out of the overflow of the Spirit. So the, the kingdom reality, I think, was sort of at work as the Lord was using him, you know, warts and all, to, to do all this good in, in society. I'm talking with Dr. Walter Strickland. We've got to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about MLK, the vision of God's kingdom. It seems to me that King's vision for civil society certainly rested on uh, a foundation of God's sovereignty and Christ's imminence and the reality of the kingdom of God, present and promised. We're going to continue a conversation about that in just a moment. Talking with Dr. Walter Strickland from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary about Martin Luther King Jr. and his sermons, his worldview, um, particularly when it comes to his understanding of the kingdom of God, about which uh, Dr. Strickland has written as well. Um, uh, let's pick up where we left off and then let's press forward, Walter. When you when you think about MLK and you think about um, the sermons that he preached the speeches that he gave, the things that we know that he said, even in private conversations um, with those who were closest to him. Um, are there are there sermons or speeches um, that come to mind that you would say, wow, now there's there's one or two or three that we we ought to be reading today. We ought to be listening to today. Yeah, you know, um, I, I mentioned our God is able because I just really do think that that is a a fundamentally helpful piece to understand um, really how He understood God. Um, there, there's, and so, so really, if you'd allow me this 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 privilege, real, real quick, sure. to just encourage again His sermons, and I, and, I, and I'll tell you why I say His sermons because uh, if you understand Dr. King's life, he was a I think he was 16 or, or maybe even younger when he graduated from high school. Then he went on to Morehouse College in Atlanta, you know, and then uh, he finished college in like three years or something like that. He was this uh, very academically inclined, 
And then he was going to go off to uh, an evangelical seminary. And then, but, but th those seminaries wouldn't let him come because of his skin color. Then he went to seminaries that would take him. And then he went to Boston University for a PhD. And then he, uh, by that time he was done, he was down at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Alabama. So, but the reality is, is that when he was in his earliest college years, um, he would, he began to question his faith. He began, he began to question major tenets of his faith. The, the, the faith of his father was one that he was trying to figure out if it was his, which is a, which is a journey that many, you know, young Christian uh, people go on as they get out of the house, as they go to college. Is this my faith? You know, is this bodily resurrection thing real, which is what he was asking is, you know, is are all these things the, the, the right way that the Bible is communicating the reality of God to us. And so he wrote several papers there, but often, unfortunately, somewhat, sometimes the only things you see that he wrote were in those papers where he was wondering and asking mm. questions. But the reality mm. was, is that that's not where he landed. Uh, as, as he got older, he, and, yeah, and he thank, was more thank mature. Thank God nobody has copies of the stuff I wrote in college. Like, right. You know what? I, I, you mean, know, I, I was being. Who even knows? <laughs> yeah, seriously. You know, there, there was a, there was a, you know, some, uh, there was somebody on the on the radio asking me once. So, so isn't he like dangerous because he wrote these things? I was like, well, I'm just glad that no one's found my my theology papers in college because I was <laughs> saying some things that were at best sloppy and at worst heretical. And so, uh, you know, I, I was like, I, mean, I need to put those things under lock and key. Or just destroy them. But all I have to say, I, I'm glad that he didn't end up there. He didn't land there. Um, he he landed much closer to the the historic African American faith that has a, a huge understanding of God, has a very significant understanding of His sovereignty, uh, understanding of the fact that you know uh, people must be transformed to be in relationship with God and be a part of this beloved kingdom in part now and fully later. And so uh, I, I think I think that that later in his life, even though it was very short, you see a more full or more uh, mature understanding of his theology. And so um, th there's definitely, you know, we, we, we know things like the I Have a Dream speech, which is not quite theological, but there is a, a eulogy for the martyred children uh, mm. in, in 1963. Where he's giving, he, he where he's eulogizing the three young girls who were killed at 16th Street Baptist Church, and so I think that was a very, very, uh, it, it was more public, but it was at the same time still very theological. So because it, it gives kind of hit some some more of his theological um, uh, underpinnings there, and and then also, um, let's see, our God is marching on. And it was a, uh, you know, done in Montgomery, Alabama in, in 65. I, th I think this is a, a, a great place to, to also look for his theology. So there's just so many different sermons that he preached uh, that, that are so beneficial. Uh, and, and, and then I, I would even say, as you're looking through the archive at Stanford, you know, and, and they produced, what, you know, what's called the King Papers, I would suggest to you the ones that he actually uh, preached at um at either Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which is what which was his church in Montgomery, Alabama, or sermons that he preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, because the, the, that, that's where you get the, mo the most robust sort of sense of his doctrine of the kingdom. Yeah, and I I appreciate that that that's the approach that you're recommending we take. Um, I I love my pastor, um, and I think that every week, uh, week in and week out, he preaches a sermon. That helps me 
uh, interact with what God has said and better understand who God is and then encourages me to go out and, you know, walk, walk by faith. Um, but if you just mm-hmm. took one sermon and you dissected every, uh, every phrase, you, you might come up with some things that, um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't preach in the media. And so I oh, just God. think that, right? Like, so I just think that if, that what you're recommending that we do, which is to take a pastor's sermons over the course of time and actually read them and listen to them, the sermons that he preached to a congregation whose hearts he was shepherding, um, you know, the people for whom he was uh, entrusted by God to open the word and help them become uh, robust disciples. To uh, That's a good exercise, um, and it helps— it helps ground us in what a person was actually thinking and how he understood the Word of God and how he was preaching it versus just the um, the public statements that he made or the things that uh, a more secular media might have chosen to record or how people taking advantage of some of the things that he said might want to, um, you know, use them to lead others to well, yeah, any number of things. So I just I appreciate it, Walter, so much. Um, thank thank you for helping us see him, um, you know, as a brother in Christ, as a pastor of local churches, and this invitation to spend some time in his actual sermons on this MLK Day. You're welcome. It's it's always a wonderful opportunity to read more and more about him. So I just encourage I just, you to do so. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Have a blessed day. And you too. Thanks. That's Dr. Walter Strickland. You can find him at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is active on Twitter, although I'll tell you his Twitter feed is basically Bible verses, which is just incredibly edifying. So there you go. Good place to uh, good place to get a dose of the word um, hour in and hour out. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, friends, we've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. I'm going to be asking you in the lead-off about your heart song. What What is your heart song? What are you singing today? What's on your playlist? With what are you filling your mind and heart and home today? What's the soundtrack of your life this morning? So uh, just as an encouragement, the background noise is sometimes just noise, but our lives are always singing a song and preaching a sermon Yes, in actual words and in the deeds that we do. So what's the sermon being preached and the song sung by your life today? Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.